Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. But before we get into the text, I want to kind of introduce you to this theme and let you know where I'm coming from and why we're calling it what we are, this hashtag truth sermon series. Human beings, we human beings, have an ear for the catchy. There's something about a catchy saying that, that, that registers in our mind and it sticks there. Think of some of the most famous quotes in the English language. You probably could even finish them for me. Uh, going old school, to be or not to be. The, you know that one, right? Or, or ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what... Both of those were before my time. How about one from my day and age? I was actually reading online, I think it was USA Today, if memory serves, identified the single most memorable quote of the last 50 years was Mr. Gorbachev. You remember. There's something about those catchy sayings that register and stick with us, so much so that we even hire people to come up with those catchy sayings for us. Uh, There's nothing that businesses want more than for their marketing to grab people's attention and to rattle around in their brain, even when they're trying not to think about it. And so there have been, through the history of time, catchy slogans there as well. One one that I always liked uh, growing up was, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too, right? Or maybe this one. You might even be able to finish this with me. Two all beef patties. See, you know it. You know it sticks. I was wondering, do they still have slogans like? I asked my daughter this. I asked my daughter this uh, last night. What was a catchy sales slogan that stuck in her mind? You know what she came up with? <laughs> that entire section knows that one. Red Robin. That's not exactly great literature, but it sticks. It sticks. And there's something about those memorable sayings that if they really are memorable, have a tendency to, well, what nowadays they call go viral. When it's something really catchy and when it really catches on, people start sharing it with others and Maybe it gets tweeted out, maybe it gets put on a Facebook page and gets shared. And if it's really good, it becomes what we're talking about here, a hashtag. Uh, My son Brendan came home from college this week and showed me one. I don't even know how this became a hashtag, but it is right now. Uh, The ceiling is the roof. I don't even know what that means. But there's something catchy, there's something memorable about it, and it got stuck into a hashtag. We do that with things. We make them memorable and condense them down into little bite-sized pieces that I like to call hashtag truths. The problem is that pithy sayings often only give you a, a partial picture of the truth. See, we remember, but we only remember a little bit. We remember that something happened Four score and seven years ago, our fathers did something somewhere, but most of us can't get much farther than that. We remember the hashtag, but miss, we remember somehow that Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream about something and it had to do with character and we don't remember much more about that than 
the fact that he had a dream. That presents a problem. We end up with, with caricatures of truth. And you know what? I, you've seen a caricature, right? You go to a... Uh, I, I see them back when I was a youth pastor. I used to see them at Kings Island or Cedar Point. You go to someplace, a fair or something like that, and they have a, a caricature artist who says, I'll draw a picture of you. And, and they draw a picture. And when you show that picture to somebody, they can recognize you. Because it takes the most memorable parts of you and it exaggerates them. It, it draws the attention, it focuses on them, but they can draw it in 15 minutes because that's all they draw is that memorable bit. They leave the details, the rest of the details of, of you out of that picture. Hashtag truths tend to do that. Make a memorable impression, but leave out a lot of the deeper details. We're not the first people to do that. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying together out of Matthew chapter 5, deals with that with the people to whom He's speaking. After talking to them about the Beatitudes, after going over the type of life that God Himself gets involved in, after talking to them about the importance of of being salt and light in the world, the importance of making a difference after after talking to them, assuring them that he's not to come, not come to abolish the law and the prophets, he gives them this interesting saying. It's there if you have your Bibles open in Matthew 5, verse 17. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What he's saying is, I've come to correct the caricature you've made of God's law. Let's think about the law. We've talked about the law together and the point of the law. We've talked before about the fact that God's law is not just an arbitrary list of whims and wishes and preferences that God has. Uh, the law is the very expression of the character of God. It is, it is the overflow of who God is. God reveals Himself to His people. He reveals Himself to us in part through the law. But over the years since Moses gave the people the law, the people condensed the law into hashtag truths, into caricatures that, that sketch the vague outline of who God is, but miss the finer details of His character. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I've come to take that caricature sketch that you have of the character of God and I've come to fill in the details that you have left out. And he begins addressing some of the hashtag truths that the people made out of God's law. The very first one he addresses, the very first hashtag truth he takes out of the law is probably the most memorable of them. If you have your Bible still open, it's there down in verse 21. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go, be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. He starts with that quote from the law, that pithy saying, that memorable phrase, thou shalt not murder. Probably starts there because it's the one commandment that everyone seems to be able to remember. And we're not good at remembering all Ten Commandments. At least one survey done by the USA Today uh, a while back said that uh, 25% of you could sit there and tell me the seven ingredients to a Big Mac. Two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce. 25% of you can come up with all seven of those. But if we're average Americans, only 14% of us can come up with all Ten Commandments. What really blew my mind about this one, and I had a hard time believing this, was less than 60% knew that thou shalt not murder was in the Ten Commandments. I don't understand how that's even possible. But that was the one that was mentioned the most. Everyone knows that murder is wrong. Thou shalt not kill. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus starts there. And while it's not a quote from the law, He also, he also starts with a, something, an aspect of the law that everyone understands. Not only are we not supposed to murder, but if we do murder, we will face a consequence for that. Anyone who does commit murder, He acknowledges, will be will be held over, will be bound over for the judgment. There is a consequence that comes with murder. Now here's something we need to bear in mind as we talk about this hashtag truth series. Jesus does not set that commandment aside. He doesn't say that's not true. He doesn't say that, that, that you can forget that aspect of the law. That's the thing about these hashtag truths. They aren't untrue they're only incomplete. And so Jesus doesn't set that truth aside or any of these others that He's going to deal with. He just seeks to fill in the fuller picture of who God is and His character. So towards that end, Jesus says, you know, there's something, there's something as bad as murder. It's not just the murderer that has to face the consequences. There's something else as dangerous to your heart as murder. Everyone, he says, who harbors anger in their heart toward a brother or sister is likewise answerable to judgment. Notice that the consequence is the same. And the punishment fits the crime. This harboring of anger is every bit as dangerous as murder. And so it merits the same condemnation, Jesus says. But part of me says, well, Jesus, what kind of anger are you talking about? You might not realize this, but there are two kinds of anger, right? And, and even in the Greek language that Matthew uses to describe 
uh, or to translate the sermon from Jesus. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit in the language that he uses to translate that sermon that Jesus preached that day, in his language there were two primary words for anger each of them representing the two kinds of anger. There is thumos anger. The anger that blazes. The anger that is a response, a reaction. It blazes up, it flares, and then it's gone. And, and then there's another word, orge, which speaks of the campfire kind of anger. It might not begin with a big flash. It might start with a, a, a tiny little smoldering ember. But over time, and with careful attention, that anger can grow. It, it's not the anger that says, somebody did something and I responded, but I'm going to let that go. This is the anger that refuses to let go. That keeps putting things onto the fire that keeps feeding that building flame there. And Jesus says, I tell you, the one who is angry, in fact, he says everyone who is angry with his brother or sister is answerable to the, to the judgment. He's not talking about this kind of anger. Matthew uses this word, the smoldering grudge, the growing fire that burns far longer and, and burns far hotter and has the potential of much more damage. In other words, Matthew seems to understand, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus wasn't talking about anger as a reaction. He was talking about the anger we harbor as a decision that we refuse to let go of and instead just continually feed. That, that fire-building, grudge-bearing anger that takes something small and, and keeps piling on, Jesus says beware. Beware, because when we harbor that kind of anger towards our brother or our sister, and here when Jesus says towards our brother, which is what the original language says, he's not, talking, he's not talking either about those who are biologically male only or those who are genetically related to us only. He's talking about fellow members of the community of faith. He says when you, when you maintain that, that, that fire-building, grudge-bearing, growing flame of anger towards a brother or sister in Christ, you're playing with something that is as dangerous to your heart and your life as murder itself. However, he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says next. There is something as bad as, if not worse, than that kind of anger. He says... Anyone, verse 22, who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. But again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And notice the intensification of the consequence. 
The first one was judgment, the kind of judgment that is passed out by, by the magistrates, by the judges in every city and every community within Israel. Uh, that, that's one level of judgment, but for something more serious, you're not tried at the local level by the magistrates in your own village. If you've done something really wrong, they cart you off to Jerusalem and make you stand in front of the Sanhedrin. And that's the word that Matthew uses here. NIV translates it as court, but it's the Sanhedrin. It's the next step up. This is an intensification of the consequence from judgment at the local level to the judgment before the Sanhedrin. What Jesus is saying here is I'm talking about a, a step up in the seriousness of what you're doing. Moving, you might say, from a misdemeanor to a felony. Whatever He's about to tell us is, is worse than murder. Is worse than anger. So what is it? He says anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka. In most translations, that word is left untranslated because it's a word whose meaning lies more in, in the feeling with which it is said than with what the word itself actually means. The word itself, raka, in Aramaic meant empty or, or vacant. Uh, in particular, it might have been used as an insult to say you have an empty head or, or you're living an empty life. But really, again, the translation isn't as important as, as the emotion and the feeling with which it said, is said, much like a lot of our curse words. It's the attitude behind them, not the dictionary definition that, that gets us into trouble. To say raka to brother or sister is a, is a statement of contempt. It is to... It is to despise someone. You are empty. You are meaningless. You don't matter to me. This is a step even beyond anger. This is where we begin to distance ourselves and say, I don't want anything to do with you. You don't matter to my life. I don't need you anymore. Jesus says that's even more dangerous to your heart and your soul than the anger that you harbor is. But then he takes it one step farther. He says, uh, verse 22, anyone who's angry with her brother's sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to her brother's sister, Raka is answerable to the court, to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What's that consequence? Well, the, the word he literally uses there is Gehenna. An Aramaic term referring to the Valley of Hinnom, a valley just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, historians and Bible scholars tell us that the Valley of Hinnom was where the, the town dump was, and it was, where, it was where the carcasses of animals were discarded, and even more telling, it was where the bodies of criminals were discarded. The bodies of criminals were discarded. So Jesus is saying, there, you know, they might call you to account if you murder somebody, but even more serious than that, they might drag you in front of the Sanhedrin if you say raka to somebody, but there is a, there's a capital offense that will get your body thrown out into, into Gehenna, the dump outside the city. 
But there's something even more here about that. Something even more here about that. Because Gehenna meant more to the people in Jesus' day than merely the dump outside the city. That picture, the place where all the refuse was discarded and consumed by fire, came to be understood in Jesus' day as a, as a metaphor, as a symbol for, for hell itself. And that's why the NIV translates it as the fire of hell here. Uh, the, Gehenna in Jesus' mouth has to mean more than just the valley outside of Jerusalem. Uh, for example, Jesus says, uh, don't worry, don't, don't fear. Don't fear the one who can, who can kill the body, but after that cannot do anything to you. Fear instead the one who can destroy both, both body and soul in Gehenna. Well, the executioner disposed of your body in, in the valley outside of Jerusalem. That's the same person. When Jesus talks about Gehenna, he's talking about something more than just the place where they threw the criminal's body away. He's using in that term that refers to the place of eventual judgment. Hell is a good translation here of this. This is definitely more serious than, than anger. Even more serious than beginning to treat our brother and sister with contempt. What is it that places us in danger of the fire of hell? It's saying, you fool. Now that word, fool, carries more weight than a mere insult. That word fool is informed by, by Proverbs where it tells us the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That, that word fool has not just a, an intellectual flavor to it. Fool even more than that is a moral judgment on someone else. It is casting aspersions on somebody else's Christianity. It's saying, you're obviously somebody who, does not, who doesn't even believe there's a God. It's not just treating someone with contempt. It is, it is condemning them. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Notice the progression here. Anyone who's angry with his brother and sister, they'll be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, will be answerable to the court. But anyone who says, you fool, to whom? The only person you say you fool to is somebody you've decided is no longer your brother or sister, nor could they ever be. It's passing a judgment on them. It's saying you're not a part of the family. It is, it is moral condemnation by somebody who does not have that call or responsibility, and that's us. Judgment belongs to Christ, right? When we start treating people that way, not just, I'm not sure I want anything to do with you, but I'm not even sure you're a part of God's kingdom, or, or even worse, I'm not sure you could ever belong to God's kingdom. That's worse still. See what happens when we allow that fire of anger to begin? At first, we, we might just respond. We might just react. But, but then we nurse that grudge. 
we keep feeding offense onto that fire. And it's not long before we start distancing ourselves from that person. We start saying, you know, I'm not sure I want anything to do with you. You mean nothing to my life. But as we keep building that fire, as we keep fueling that grudge, it brings us to the place where we even begin to to question whether or not they belong to the kingdom. Notice how it gets worse. Jesus says, stop here. Stop here. There might be that moment of reaction. There might be that response of anger. But don't let anger turn into a decision lest you find yourself subject to judgment, the court, and eventually even the fire of hell itself. It's about a lot more than just not killing somebody. It's about recognizing that they are a part of my family. And I need to treat them like that. The hashtag truth is a caricature. Jesus says, I've come to fill in the details there. Come to fill in the details. Don't let anger become a choice.